Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people, and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure, which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is Dr. Natalie Dyer, who spoke at the 2021 Beyond the Brain Conference on Universal Love, and who is a research scientist studying the therapeutic effects of integrative medicine and spiritual practices, including yoga, meditation, Reiki, psychedelics, and universal love. She completed her doctorate in neuroscience at Queen's University and postdoctoral fellowships in psychology at Harvard University and Harvard Medical School. She currently works as a research scientist with Connor Integrative Health Network and as president of the nonprofit organization, the Center for Reiki Research. She's published many scientific papers and presented her research to diverse audiences throughout North America and Europe. And together with over 300 other scientists and physicians, uh, Natalie was one of the first signees of the Manifesto for Post-Materialist Science, a declaration for science to move beyond the outdated materialist paradigm. Natalie is also an energy medicine practitioner specializing in Reiki and North American, European and Tibetan shamanic practices. Well, that's quite a range, Natalie, and it's lovely to have you on Imaginal Inspirations. And so I'm going to start by asking you about a shaping moment involving your choice of work. Uh, first, just thank you, David. I'm really happy to be here. I always enjoy um, speaking with you and all the various events that uh, we're both a part of. Um, so I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. A shaping moment. There's there's one moment that does stand out for me, although I, I believe it was many things kind of coming together. Mostly I was led into my research work um, through my own practice and through synchronicity and intuition. So I was a researcher first, but certainly um, a spiritual seeker as well. And I lived in these two worlds or seemingly separate two worlds for a long time. And I don't even know what led to it, but I just had a moment of insight one day um, realizing I could scientifically study these spiritual practices and experiences um, that were very dear to me. And then I went and took a walk and, and I walked by my local bookstore and I saw in the window um, Dr. Mario Beauregard's book, uh, The Spiritual Brain. And I was in a neuroscience program at the time. So I took that definitely as a sign that indeed I should be doing this work. And shortly after, I, I had a reading with a psychic who's actually extremely accurate. And she said, oh, you're going to bridge science and spirituality. And it was just another sign for me that, oh, uh, yeah, I'm on, I'm on the right track here. And so I contacted Mario and we've been colleagues and he's a good friend of mine ever since. Um, so he's been really important um, in my journey. And so it's really been about merging these two selves, the spiritual seeker and the scientist, but really they all have one thing in common, which is the search for truth. So um, from a really young age, I, I've mentioned before, my childhood was kind of rough and I, it caused me to question. And so that questioning really has led me all along, but in this kind of science and spirituality path and, and then really coming together and understanding they're not separate. <laughs> Science is a method of investigation, and so are spiritual practices. 
So I think nearly every study that I've done, um, whether it's yoga research or Reiki or universal love, or even plant medicines or psychedelics has been guided by my own experience um, and my own fascination over the subject. So yeah, I think uh, the defining moment was probably just those signs that were affirming how I felt that my, my career should proceed. And sounds like you've really kept on track uh, in that sense. And I think often those synchronicities and meetings and books and people, they play a, a crucial role. And is there, I mean, you mentioned Mario, but um, do you have any other influential mentors or teachers um, who gave you uh, some good advice to be going on with? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I've been fortunate to have a lot of really great mentors and it does feel to me like um, they're almost like, spiritual guides in a sense. And the first one, for sure, my, um, my doctorate advisor, Janet Menard, who I love dearly, um, taught me mostly in the beginning to just be myself. And I think when a lot of academics would understand this, if you feel a certain way outside of the norm, or you have certain experiences that maybe don't fit into this, the current scientific paradigm, you can feel alone, or you can feel like maybe I shouldn't share my true self. But Janet was, she was full of cute eccentricities and she invited this atmosphere of acceptance. And um, despite being in a neuroscience lab, when I told her, for instance, that I was training in Reiki, um, she was like, oh, you're such a healer. <laughs> and, and I really, I was surprised by that response because she's a very good scientist. Um, but uh, her support and her um, understanding and her acceptance of me was really, really foundational for me being able to move forward to study what I really felt was important. And I don't think I would be where I am if I didn't have her as my advisor. She also taught me more practically to be a better academic writer, to just buckle down and have some snacks and um, just take it word by word. And yeah, it just felt like at this cosmic connection and that, you know, I, I was in the right place at the right time having her as a mentor. And it turns out that we're actually related like very distantly on my paternal grandmother's side. So uh, kind of funny, but I do feel like that was meant to be in a sense. And, but other mentors too, my first advisor at Harvard University was Ellen Langer. And she was really instrumental in building my confidence and willingness to take risks in research. Um, so she has conducted uh, many paradigm shifting studies all around mindfulness and the power of the mind over health. And I had a really great time being in that lab and, and the creativity there was tremendous. And I met um, so many amazing people from all over the world there. Satbir Khalsa, who was my second postdoc advisor, he more practically just taught me the importance of academic collaboration and to stand up for yourself, um, or you can get taken advantage of in that environment as well. And one more, I guess, currently, Jeffrey Dusick, um, he's a current collaborator and mentor of mine. And he really, he always reminds me to, he says, he said at conferences too, to keep your eyes on your own mat. So when you're in a yoga class, for instance, like, don't look at what other people are doing, you know, maybe they're, they can do a pose that you can't do, but it's really about your own experience and what pushing your edge. So he always says, keep your eyes on your own mat. Don't worry about what the other researchers are doing and really to remove the ego out of the work you're doing. And he also um, has taught me a lot about balancing work and personal life, including the importance of family. So um, I think between the four of those, um, <laughs> I've had a lot of really great guidance from mentors. So um, I've been really, really fortunate. Yes, you've done very, you've done really well. I, I think the 
the encouragement to to be yourself but but also to have high standards within your academic work and, and not to forget about balancing family and the rest of your life i mean what better advice could you get yeah and i so, feel like they all balance out all of their advices yeah <laughs> no very it's wonderful and, and then the next question is about about books that have shaped your life and thinking. And I, I find with many of my guests, if I say a book, they say, no, no I can't just um, yeah. give me one book. It's several. And obviously, Spiritual Brain is one that you mentioned already. But what, what are key books that have, have shaped your life and, and thinking? Yeah, exactly that. There's definitely not one. And I'm going to miss a whole bunch, I'm sure. But <laughs> I, from a young age, love to read, for sure. Um, and I think early on in my spiritual seeking, um, if you want to call it that, I, I was accumulating a, a lot of knowledge, and it ended up kind of like information. And, but it wasn't until I read um, The Miracle of Mindfulness by Thich Nhat Hanh. And he's just, if you've ever read him or listened to him, I'm sure you have, he's so eloquent and so distilled and, and simple that it really introduced me to the world of mindfulness, where I wasn't really having the practices, it was like spiritual knowledge without the practices. So he brought me into the world of meditation and mindfulness. And that was just transformative. And I really owe that to another uh, professor of mine, actually, uh, Dan Dolderman at the University of Toronto, he taught a course on positive psychology. And he had us one of the first classes just sit and observe our thoughts. And I had never done that before. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, my gosh, it's like crazy. And he's like, you probably had a hard time with that. It's probably crazy in there. And, um, and so he brought mindfulness into the class. And that was just completely transformative. Also, some of Eckhart Tolle's work was really important. Um, a New Earth for really um, understanding mm. the shifts that are going on, the collective shifts on the planet, and and the way out of suffering, and to really disengage from identifying with thoughts. Um, so that was really important for me because I was um, depressed and anxious a lot as a child, and just from childhood and learning poor behaviors, and and that was really like, oh my gosh, I've been. <laughs> thinking, almost thinking myself into this depression. Like I'm not I'm mm -hmm. thinking I'm a depressed person in these, this narrative that and no, I'm not. And <laughs> so really to change my thinking, that was really, really key. I love the Upanishads. I love that um, ancient Eastern wisdom. The that's taught me so much about oneness and how to conceptualize that and distill it down again. Rupert Sheldrake's work was really important for me in high school. I read I read some of his books, uh, The Sense of Being Stared At, and that got me very excited about this work. Um, so there's been a lot, and I'm, I'm sure there's some that I've missed, but um, it really, speaking back to the mentorship, it really shows like how it's such a community that shifts people, really. Um, and some of these authors, they'll never you know, know me and know how much they helped me, but I'm really, really grateful for, for all the teachings throughout the world mm -hmm. and all these, all these people, so... And what, what about William James? Is he an important influence as well? He certainly is. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, <laughs> I didn't read much William James until I ended up um, working in William James Hall. That's where I did my postdoc. And then I <laughs> discovered William James, what I should have discovered before then. Um, and yeah, very influential in that. Really sticking to your beliefs and, and being confident in speaking about them. I think like 
a lot of older authors were, and texts that I read, they're very confident in, in their knowledge. And I think today we're kind of, at least in academic academia, you're kind of afraid to say certain things, like without a citation, for example. Um, mm-hmm. So reading, <laughs> reading the, you know, the father of modern psychology and his, his perspectives, and it's like, okay, I can say these things. I can feel this way. And I'm in William James Hall. So um, yeah, absolutely. He was very useful um, for for that confidence and um, again, feeling accepted um, in the way that I perceive the world in academia. And he did a lot of public lecturing as well and, and uh, writing for popular magazines and more. No. So he, he got his message out, not just to academic psychologists and, and philosophers, but also um, you know, to the general public. And I've, I've got a number of es- essays in my bookshelves um, right behind. Uh, so uh, moving on, Natalie, um, can you identify any other sort of key moments of insight in your work, uh, especially in relation to the nature of consciousness? Because, I mean, that's what you're dealing with all the time, I think, in your research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I wouldn't say it's one particular moment in this case. It's more just as I do the research, just that discovering. So I think it's it's rather subtle, but really just the power of the mind or consciousness over the physical body and over health. Um continues to amaze me and um, it makes perfect sense when we think of consciousness as fundamental consciousness being the ground of all of this and that the it's the you know the psychology doesn't come from you know the physical brain as much as it can come from the emotions the spirit and, and our interconnection with each other and and we see this time and time again and I think with with my Reiki research for example the really that conscious connection and the emotional healing that comes from that is a really critical part um, for reducing symptoms. So that's where I'm really interested now is, is in that healing. What is the ingredient? How do we get to that state where we can become whole? And I think that this is where universal love comes in as well as universal love is this um, is really a, uh, that uh, infinite consciousness and merging with that, merging with the the higher self or the the self with the capital S as we call it. And what kind of healing comes from that? Um, it's kind of like a reset. So it's not one particular thing, but but really the the journey of, of healing, I think is is really important um, because all of, essentially all of us have some kind of trauma or, or some kind of mm. disconnection from our, our soul or our self. And really how do we bring back that wholeness I think because I originally motivated by um, reducing suffering. So what is the best way to do that? What is the long lasting way to reduce our suffering? Um, And there's many, many practices. Um, So that's the key for me in the work. Yes, I think it's interesting that that trauma seems to have come so much to the fore um, in in the last few months. I mean, there's there's a Sand Italy um, series with Gabor Maté, of course, mm-hmm. the trauma, the collective trauma that we've been going through uh, and its impact on mental health. Um, so it, it seems to be a moment of awareness and, and which may be a prelude to, to further healing. Is that how, how you see it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, trauma is it's very interesting. It's all about that, you know, fragmentation versus unification. And, and I'm also interested in how that plays into the greater reality because, you know, we, we come in here eventually we, you know, when we're younger, there is no real separate sense, but sense of self, but we develop that ego, then we develop the suffering. 
And how do we return back to that? And, and what, is, what are the dynamics of that? It's very interesting to me. How do we end up in these, these separate senses of self? I, I think it's fascinating. And then the collective healing that comes from that, not just the individual, but once we, we shift our culture and we really understand this, and I believe we are headed toward that, that unification of humanity, what, you know, what can we achieve together once we heal that massive wound of separateness? It's all very, yeah. very interesting, important to me. I mean, for me, what's crucial is is that what emerges from all this is unity and diversity and diversity mm-hmm. and unity rather Definitely. than uniformity, which, which yes. is a lot of. I think it's, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Absolutely. And one of, one of the items in our universal love scale is really appreciating diversity and differences. It's not, we don't want a homogenous humanity where everyone has to act, look, be, feel the same way. Absolutely not. We want to accept that diversity, like this beautiful mosaic that we are. So um, having that balance is super key, I think. And I'm really, really glad you mentioned that because I don't want to give the impression that I think everyone should be like a unified hive mind or anything like that um, because we all have our unique perspectives and our unique talents and gifts and it's really beautiful. So. And that's how life works. Life is diversity. Exactly. Diversity and biodiversity, mm-hmm. as we're learning, is crucial for our long-term survival. Absolutely. Anyway, I'd like just to move on to um, how your understanding of consciousness influences the way you live your life, which I'm sure it does. Yeah, definitely. I think the one thing I, I, I try to keep in my mind as much as possible is that we are one consciousness, experiencing reality as these separate selves for a short time, and that... Consciousness is fundamental and matter is is not really solid, but condensed consciousness or however you want to put it, dense consciousness. But beyond just the knowledge of these things, it's really important that I keep up and cultivate these practices um, that generate universal love so that it's not just we can get caught sometimes in just the knowledge, um, but really having the experience of this unification of the self um, is really, really key. And I think this understanding and experience is truly transformative and how how I interact with people. Um, it gives me more social mindfulness, more understanding, greater joy, um, compassion, and also patience with people. Everyone's at their own point in the journey. Everyone has their own, like we said, trauma and to try to not take things personally. Um, so it's really, um, really helps me in my interactions with others, but it also infuses my life with magic. So I, you know, mm. I live in the forest and I, you know, I can perceive sometimes beings that maybe the average person doesn't perceive or the nature spirits or, you know, and that just gives me like, it just infuses me with like excitement and joy and I can sometimes hear music and um, all of that I think is like, is really important for like coloring life and um, reading the signs of nature um, looking for deeper meanings and really having this greater conversation with spirit and nature. I think that's really, really important for me. If I'm not having that kind of dialogue or interconnection, then eventually I I get too lost in my head. So I I think like in terms of dealing with other people appropriately and then connecting with like the unseen magic that's all around us are, are two keys for me. Beautiful. And how, how do you see the role of the sacred feminine for our time? Oh, I think it's really, really important. And um, we're seeing a lot of, of resurgence of this. And, and we want to maintain balance, of course. We want the, the sacred. We don't want to go too far one way. Exactly. And then, because the feminine can be um, 
to like boundaryless, um, take advantage of, enable. So these are the dark sides of that. And we want to temper that with the sacred masculine of boundaries and protection. And so I think it's really important that we definitely increase that energy, but make sure that we're doing it in a balanced way. And I think there's been a disruption for, for women. I think about this sometimes with just how women have entered the workforce, which was predominantly a masculine structure. So um, for myself, you know, the nine to five in an office doesn't really work for me. I, I'm a little more fluid than that. You know, some days I'll, I'll work straight for really, it depends, there's hormones, there's shifts, you know. So I think finding a way that we can balance the work that women do as well, because and when speaking with a lot of women, there's this craving of community, of, of sharing child caring, for instance, of cooking together, growing food. So I think we really need to get um, some of that back into our culture. And um, I do uh, done a lot of research looking at stressed work populations. So caretakers, social workers, physicians, and the, the women suffer more. I got to say their, 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 their depression, their anxiety is higher than the men, whether it's maybe they're reporting it higher, I'm not sure, but they seem to be suffering more in that kind of environment. So how can we bring some balance into, into their lives and, and, and um, feel nurtured and, there's this huge thing about self-care, self-care, self-care for women. But I also think women need to take care of other women as well. There's so much burden put on, I think. So, so we yeah, really so need to self-care yeah. and, and mm-hmm. care in the community. Exactly. And, uh, uh, mutual aid. Exactly. Um, these are the, these are what we need. And yes. And I agree. And this balance between the masculine, sacred masculine, sacred feminine, it's like balancing Matthew Fox with Anne Baring. And then um, coming towards the end, um, do you have a favorite proverb or quote that you'd like to share um, with our listeners? I think um, it's probably fresh because of the Beyond the Brain one, but um, the Beyond the Brain event on universal love. But I do like simple quotes. Um, there are a lot of really long, intelligent, profound, lengthy quotes. Um, <laughs> but some of my favorites are um, There Are No Others. I love that. Ramana Maharashi said that. Or in the Upanishads, There's No One Here But the Lord of Love. And I think that it's just a way of distilling back what I said originally of just remembering that there is this oneness underlying all of this and to, to keep that in mind as I go throughout the day. So it's, and it's very simple and straightforward. And I also like um, Thich Nhat Hanh's quote of um, you must love in such a way that the person you love feels free. I think that's a really good um, mm-hmm. quote for true love. So combining love with freedom i think this is a mm-hmm. this is a key theme exactly. and then I, I think you in a sense you've almost answered this question already but my last question is is about any advice you'd give your younger self mm. <laughs> oh that's a good one um i think i would just encourage my younger self because um like i, I think i mentioned um i don't think i was always confident in the beginning but i did feel this sense of purpose and need to help reduce the suffering of others so I think I would just tell myself it's all going to work out just keep keep going keep going with what you're doing so um, and I think I had such great mentors that provided that for me along the way because some I'm approached by some students that say how do you are you not scared to talk about this stuff and yeah having the the mentorship in your own self that that is strong in your belief and is coming from a good place. It's like, I'm, I'm coming from a pure place of wanting to reduce suffering. And I really hope that that comes across. So yeah, I think I would just tell myself, keep going. 
Well, I think that's exactly what you did. No, so I think your younger self was already on track with the advice that your older self was giving back. Um, so it's a beautiful line and thread, uh, Natalie. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for sharing your your wisdom and insight. Um, thank you so listener. much for having. Thank you. Thank you for having me.